Hello, everybody. My name is Peter, and I want to welcome you to the We Were All Raised by Wolves podcast, the podcast about the new HBO Max show, Raised by Wolves. In this first podcast, we're going to dive into episodes one and two of the show. Um, and as we go through this podcast, what we're going to do is have episode recaps, answer questions, and talk about some of the theories and themes that the show is presenting. And I think right from the get-go, right from episodes one and two, um, this show is putting out some really, really big themes and, and really lending itself to some pretty uh, interesting and, and just unique theories that uh, the very strange world of Kepler 22b and, and the you know universe that has the Mithraics and the atheists and a very uh, intriguing history on Earth, you know, has already teed up for us. So I think this is going to be a show that is like a lot of the work Ridley Scott has done and, and uh, you know, the showrunner of this show. Uh, has done in the past, it is a really rich uh, universe with a lot of layers to unpeel. So I, I hope you're, um, you know, as interested and, and uh, intrigued by the show as I am. And I would urge you all to uh, subscribe, rate and review this podcast uh, so that we can actually get some more listeners and, and get interest in the show because I, I really do want to see the show go on to a second, third season. And I, I really want to see where this story is going. I'm hoping that it gets picked up. Um, and I think it will, given the uh, positive, very positive reaction thus far. Um, but uh, yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about it. And, uh, you know, we're going to begin by diving right into episodes one and two. Uh, the next uh, podcast, um, we will do episodes uh, three and four uh, and then, you know, go on from there as the new episodes are released. So this episode will have spoilers for episodes one and two of Raised by Wolves. So I'm going to pause here. And please, you know, don't listen any further if you haven't watched at least episodes one and two of this show. Um, hopefully, uh, for subsequent episodes, I'll be able to get uh, someone to join me so you guys don't have to hear my voice alone uh, droning on and on. Uh, and I've got a couple of folks who I think uh, will make some really great additions to this podcast. So without that, without further ado, rather, um, let's dive into the uh, recap. Um, um, and I think the uh, creators of the show... Uh, did a fantastic job, like quickly establishing the rules and parameters of this universe and, you know, the earth that that these folks came from uh, before they arrived at uh, Kepler 22b. Um, interesting note about Kepler 22b. Uh, so that's a is actually a real uh, exoplanet. Um, it's, you know, actually, I want to say uh, quite a lot farther than 13 light years away. I think it's 600 light years away. Um, but it is considered, it's in the constellation Cygnus, and it is considered um, a uh, planet that is very Earth-like. Um, it likely has water. Um, it orbits its sun, uh, you know, at a distance not very far from, you know, the, the distance that uh, we orbit our sun. Um, it's about six times bigger than Earth, uh, and its surface temperature is not too far off from, you know, the average temperature here. It's 22 degrees Celsius or 72 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So I, I do give the uh, showrunners props right from the get-go for picking uh, an actual exoplanet that, that we've looked at. And one of the ones that I think is, uh, has attracted the most interest, you know, among scientists for potentially having life and being Earth-like. So it's, uh, it's a, I think referred to as a Goldilocks planet or a planet in, in their Goldilocks zone. Um, as well. So the show kicks off with, um, you know, mother and father, two androids crash landing. Uh, I guess it's not really crash landing, landing on Kepler 22b. Um, they encounter some trouble as their lander or ship is about to fall into one of these huge holes. Um, they escape, they, you know, get to an area where they build a settlement. Um, you know, they take out six of these embryos and nine months later we have six kids. You know, it's not very long after that, that problems occur. Um, you know, as the kids are growing up, they, you know, encounter different problems and troubles. You know, Tally, one of the, one of the young uh, girls appears to fall into a, one of those giant weird holes. I, I did wonder at the time, my first question was, I mean, these androids are pretty sophisticated and they seem to have, you know, strength and a lot of raw materials nearby. Like maybe put a fence up in front of the holes, you know, um, when you're raising kids, I, I guess that wasn't totally um, part of their programming. Um, but, uh, so we do meet, you know, we do meet the kids and we see them slowly kind of drop off one after the other until, uh, we are left with, of course, uh, just Campion, uh, Campion being the runt of this entire group, uh, and also, um, being the, the one embryo that 
seemed to be stillborn that was um, brought back to life or given life uh, through some mix of, you know, mother's uh, sustaining juices, I guess, uh, slash her, you know, it's kind of led, you're led to think that it's a, almost a prayer, um, her prayer um, that, you know, Campion, um, you know, survived. So that was like an interesting moment. She, and again, it might be probably going too far saying it was a prayer, um, but uh, certainly it was um, a song and kind of seemed like it was in the nature of a prayer really that brought him back. So, you know, they're obviously trying to build a new civilization and, and you know, being having been sent by the atheists, uh, the, the focus is building an atheistic civilization. Now, I do want to make a point here because, you know, if, if someone's an atheist, really, um, you know, it really shouldn't matter very much what like other people think. Like if, you know, in a just and fair and equitable society, like if I'm an atheist and you're a believer, like, you know, more power to you. Um, but the uh, atheism of, um, you know, that mother and father want to build the civilization upon is a little bit in some ways like theism, right? It's because this atheism isn't content to just say like, you can believe whatever you want, but like, don't force your beliefs on me. It's you may not pray. You may not believe in deities like belief in deities or, you know, anything non-scientific is wrong, is bad. Um, and when you make moral judgments about, you know, belief systems and such, you, you, you know, end up taking on the uh, sort of, you know, the veneer, or at least at least the veneer, maybe even the actual nature of a religion itself. You you become sort of a religion of non-believers, and you know I think some people have have said that or launched uh, that critique at some of the more like outspoken, more you know quote unquote militant atheists out there who you know make this like a, a big a big uh, a big thing. They they want not just to um, you know cast aspersions on believers and stuff, but they also advocate like. You know, the best society would be one without, you know, any form of theism or, you know, God worship or whatever. So with that aside, um, you know, we get to the point in the show where there's only uh, Campion and Spiria uh, left. And, um, you know, uh, this really interesting scene where Mother, and this is again in the first episode where Mother is, is talking to them and, and explaining that, you know, um, belief on the, uh, in the unreal can comfort the human mind. But, and this is a big but, it also weakens it. Um, and, uh, you know, you should rely on science and yourselves, not some fake entity. Only science can heal, uh, Spiria. Only science can, you know, move the civilization forward. Um, and Campion asks like, well, I mean, the Mithraic did win the war. How do we know that their like deity soul didn't help them? Like, you know, how do we know that praying won't help, um, Spiria? And of course, um, Spiria dies and, and Campion is left alone. And, you know, from this moment, this story kind of moves pretty quickly. Uh, you know, Spiria is buried and, um, you know, basically uh, you, you get the impression that father realizes like the operation is is over, like we're, we're kind of screwed. And he tries to go to the downed to their ship to send a signal to the Ark. Uh, and basically tell them like, hey, there's a, a human here and, uh, you know, you guys should come recover him because, you know, we're not going to last forever. Um, he doesn't succeed, uh, but, uh, you know, mother finds out after having a dream of her, you know, flying through Earth, watching and surveying a war, war-torn universe, war-torn planet um, and waking up flying, which, you know, was surprising. She confronts father. They have a very interestingly choreographed android fight scene uh, that results in uh, father being uh, deactivated. And the next time we see mother, she's in the necromancer pose, standing upon a rock, um, you know, talks to Campion, tells him, sorry, father, you know, broke down and had to throw him in a pit. Um, but, you know, Campion seems a little suspicious, but, you know, the next morning he goes out there and he goes to the ship and he activates it or act, tries to activate it and he succeeds in sending a signal forward while mother uh, seemingly continues to malfunction or break down and exudes exhumes the uh, bones of some serpent there, you know, exhausting herself in the process. And I feel like they must have cut like a scene here uh, somewhere in the editing room because the transition from, you know, 
Kempian running to go to the uh, ship that his dad was trying to access and uh, mother just like, you know, foaming at the mouth, like blood milk, whatever, and exhuming these uh, serpent bones. It seemed very abrupt. Anyway, mother gets exhausted. They pass out. Campion passes out next to her. It's a very womb-like embryonic scene, the way they're sleeping and the, what appears to be the fetal position together. And then lo and behold, the Mithraic arrive. Um, including Marcus, who I think a lot of people will recognize as uh, uh, Magnus from Vikings, uh, which is not a show I've watched, but a show I've heard a lot of really good things about. Um, and Travis Fimmel is an excellent actor. Um, so yeah, the uh, the Mithraic arrive, and it's uh, they've just you know landers have been deployed from the Ark to uh, identify the signal that they received, um, and they you know find the encampment, uh, and uh, from there uh, it they kind of impose themselves on mother and, and the boy. And I thought this scene was really interesting in, in the first episode, because you could see that there it's not very different really from uh, if you imagine like the medieval era, uh, you know, band of knights, hedge knights, just, you know, people working for some Lord passing through some village uh, in the middle of nowhere where there's just a mother and a boy um, and then making themselves at home you know, making themselves at home on their property, like making themselves home with, you know, you know, saying like, oh, I hope you don't mind. You seem to have a lot of food. You, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mind helping a few nights in the Lord's service, would you? Like, of course, sure. Come on in. Ah, uh, you know, it's getting pretty dark. Like you wouldn't mind if we, uh, we spent the night, would you? Again? Yeah, sure. Come on in. Um, and, uh, you know, the mother, mother in this case, and I'm sure women in, in medieval times, trying their best to minimize like any sort of sources of conflict while getting a little bit of information. Um, and then as soon as she takes them to their chambers, they immediately plot basically to take the boy. Um, she's an ant, clearly an Android. Um, and there's mention of a prophecy about an orphan, uh, you know, alone in the wilderness, um, or an you know, orphan in the wilderness. So they, they conspire to take the boy in the morning and they, you know, they get their Android to commit to basically taking down mother if she inter intervenes. So when all that happens, um, she uh, is beaten down by their android. Um, and, you know, pretty thoroughly, uh, she takes a tumble in the fire. It looks pretty bad until she manages, uh, you know, a very powerful blow that brings the, uh, you know, the Mithraic android to his knees. And then, you know, they tussle a little bit more. And the next thing we know, one, uh, you know, uh, the boy screams uh, for mother bring her out and she uses her, you know, extraordinary power to, um, irradiate or just obliterate, um, two of the Mithraic while, uh, Marcus is just subdued and runs off. <clears throat> of course she chases him. She hacks the lander. It's interesting that she didn't kill him. Uh, you know, my theory is that maybe for some reason, in some way she was able to tell that he was not truly Mithraic. And obviously we find out in the second episode that he's not. Um, and she spares him and just takes the lander. And I think uh, what we see next was uh, really incredible. She flies up to the Ark. And uh, I, I think one of the most iconic scenes uh, in any pilot I, I've watched um, goes through the uh, Ark and just, you know, vaporizes into red, you know, bloody dust. Um, basically everyone who stands in her way until she gets to the bridge or the control room of the arc, which by the way, it seemed like a little, I, there has to be probably a little bit more edits on the editing room uh, floor there because it was like, she landed in this cool hangar. She walked through two hallways and then she was like at the bridge and, you know, in control of the arc. So I, I feel like she must've, um, it's probably either stuff in the editing room floor or they just had to make it a pretty quick attack is like to depict something as big as the arc actually is would be uh quite an undertaking so anyway really stylistically you know beautiful i thought really well done um and uh she basically gives an order to the arc to uh fly into the planet and uh it's interesting because you, she probably could have gone through uh the arc taken control of the arc and you know basically killed every single person on the ark and then used the ark as a you know as just like a source of, of resources for the kids and stuff but you could tell two things right number one her core programming is pretty tight it's basically 
you know, we need to get to Kepler 22b and we need to, you know, create these, uh, you know, bring these embryos to term and make these people. And then they have to sustain themselves on their own, right? Like, of course, you know, mother and father are strong enough that they could, you know, potentially jump really high and like reach food that's out of reach and, you know, whatever. But they need the, ki the, the kids and, the, and the, you know, the humans growing up there to figure out a way to sustain, you know, their own lives on their own without the aid of, of the androids or android-like help. Um, they have to science their way, you know, to the future. So to her, she probably looks at the Ark as, you know, nothing really that has any use to them because they're not going to be getting in and patrolling the cosmos like as an as a, as a orbiting craft. It really doesn't have much use to her, um, but it is a source of, you know, raw resources. And I think in her brain, she's thinking, well, you know, if there are probably other interstellar vessels, intergalactic vessels that have crashed into um, crashed into planets, so I'm just going to crash this one. And if we need resources, we can scavenge, which is something even the kids can do if they they can uh, eventually traverse the distance um, there. And that's pretty much how it ends. Uh, she blindfolds herself because we we get some impression later on that her eyes have some role in her uh, attack prowess or just attack ability. So she blindfolds herself when she picks up the kids. She doesn't want to even risk it. And uh, yeah, it's a very, you know, very, very strong uh, premiere pilot, whatever you want to call it, um, that ends in a very like uh, ambiguous note. Like I, you know, I, I seen a lot of stuff in the, the few discussion boards about the show. People like some people say she's a villain already. Some people say she's a hero. Some people find, you know, Campion sympathetic. Some people find her sympathetic. Some people, you know, just are not sure what they're seeing. And that's really a sign of, of, of great storytelling, right? Great storytelling doesn't tell you what to think. It shows you and it lets you sort of draw your own conclusions. And that's, that's I think, a, a really good, um, you know, really good aspect of the show. Um, then we get to the second episode, which starts off with the uh, war on Earth. And we've got these two characters who uh, recover a uh, medical android. And they quickly discover that the medical android was doing examinations on Mithraic officers who are going to be in the Ark. Um, I loved, I love the practical effects, uh, the, all the visual effects really in this scene of the surgery. I thought the medical droid was awesome and hilarious. I love the kind of broken, weird cadence of uh, the surgery. Like you are doing really well. Like it's, it's you could. I mean, they just do a really good job in the show of you know, making the androids seem like what androids would be like. Like there's this uncanny valley quality to some of the way they talk and some of the way they, you know, move. Um, you know, I think the lead actors, mother and father, um, you know, do that superbly. Like, you know, they really, you just feel like there's something a little bit off of them. And I think in the first episode when mother was interacting with the Mithraic, that was when you really felt it most. Like there's this like unnatural element to, uh, unnatural quality to her emotions and her actions and stuff that I think really uh, stands out um, and distinguishes her as like not all the way human. Um, but yeah, back to the second episode, uh, you know, uh, Marcus uh, or, you know, would be Marcus and um, his, uh, his uh, companion decide to have plastic surgery to take on the appearances uh, and identities really of two Mithraic officers who they then hunt and kill um, uh, and they do that in exchange for basically taking their places on the Ark to get off of Earth. They are surprised when they ransack the, uh, you know, the real people's apartment that they have a son. Paul did not think about that, did they? Um, and uh, it's interesting. I, I, like when I thought about it, I was like, well, I mean, if I were doing this as them today, um, I feel like I would probably it would occur to me that like they have a son or they may have a kid or something or kids. But, you know, I, I was thinking like this world, this earth that they live in is, uh, you know, so broken, like so, so broken, so messed up. I mean, even more messed up than ours, if you could believe it um, at the time, at this time, uh, we, you know, 2020 is not over, obviously. So, you know, we, we never know. Um, but like th that world is so broken that I think they probably just assumed like no one's having kids. Um, and uh, in fact, on the Ark itself, at least the the nursery that we see it doesn't have that many kids, you know, like maybe a dozen, a couple dozen. And, and it doesn't seem like there are a lot of like nursery areas. That seems to be it, which makes me think that like perhaps children in this society are extremely rare. Like maybe there's, you know, something like a one child policy uh, or, or, you know, only the most senior uh, people in the Mithraic 
hierarchy are allowed to have kids. Like there could be something there, but it's not really, um, you know, they don't really go into it. So anyway, uh, Marcus and his companion uh, end up syncing up with Paul. Um, they both end up, or they all end up getting on the ark together. And lo and behold, uh, this 13 year journey to Kepler 22B, and I mean, they must be using some really sophisticated um uh what do you call it space propulsion technologies because again it's like 700 or 600 light years away and they get there in a mere 13 years um they have these uh sort of simulator things or virtual like hibernation virtual reality things where basically they uh they go in and for the entire 13 year journey they, they perceive or experience the 13 years as they are when they got into the hibernation thing um but also uh, they are, you know, able to like use that time to learn things and interact with each other and, and, and whatever, and traverse while they traverse the, uh, you know, the cosmos. Right. So, um, that's, uh, and I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, back on, uh, Kepler 22B, uh, in the encampment, we see mother salvaging, uh, the, uh, the Android that she killed, um, she ends up taking his eyes and they make her, uh, they, she makes them her eyes. She puts away her weaponized eyes. And interestingly, she takes the, um, she takes the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, um, heart, or I guess the processor of, uh, of um, the broken Android and reinstalls it in father, bringing him back to life. Um, he's surprised at first and he wonders why she, uh, she brought him back and they, you know, she tells him, you know, it's going to be fine. Like just, yeah, I did a lot of, I did a lot of good here. Let's, we have kids, the family's restored. Um, you know, meanwhile, we get a scene with Marcus who's tying himself to a rock and, and going to sleep, uh, you know, and, and ultimately just trying to, you know, not die while he's uh, out there. Uh, he'll get saved later. So father reintroduces himself to our, you know, shows uh, campion that he's back. Campion's very happy, but there's some tension there because he's like, well, mom killed all humans um, on the ark and we should take her eyes. Uh, father is hesitant to do so. Um, and there's a little bit more exchange among the kids. Uh, there's, a, you know, the first family dinner, which is as awkward as very many family dinners. Um, as, uh, you know, we, we have mother basically telling these kids like, look, your, your religious beliefs are over right? You're not in a position anymore to, uh, actually, you know, pray at the table or anything like this is it. You're, we're done guys. Um, which, you know, takes many of them aback. You could tell what I found interesting about this scene is that basically in the very next, uh, the very next, next scene, um, mother is in that like tent thing and, uh, doing what looks like, you know, praying, um, you know, she seems to be praying completely, uh, you know, like to a shrine of her, of her, of her dead children, um, which, uh, you know, I think father kind of notices, but doesn't like confront her on. He just says like, I, I think about those old memories too. Sometimes, you know, they have a conversation about her eyes and, and the eyes being, you know, her wanting to hold on to them to keep them safe. Um, there's some more stuff with the kids where, you know, the, the five new kids from, you know, the ark talk about the, the kids who died and they implant this idea and, you know, Hunter, uh, puts aside the eldest of the kids, puts this idea in, in Campion's head that maybe mother is actually the one killing these kids, um, slowly. And they, you know, for whatever reason, she didn't kill him. Um, there's a pretty funny scene, uh, where they're talking about the physical labor and stuff. And, uh, father tells an incredible joke which uh, Hunter, which guides Hunter into basically accepting his uh, physical labor uh, require, you know, he chooses that over having to hear father's uh, endless jokes. Um, and then uh, you can see that mother identifies Tempest as being pregnant and, um, you know, uh, takes Tempest aside. And uh, I, one really interesting thing here is that the way mother talks about the baby, it is almost uh, like almost like a religious level of fervor. Like you mustn't think of the man who raped you. Think only of the child. Think only of the child. The child is innocent. You know, it's something that you more candidly would assume with like a 
religious world point worldview rather than a you know purely non-religious one which would ultimately be dictated by like logic and stuff but her core programming as a mother is so profoundly like baked into her that you know that's it um if you watch the scene again and I, I encourage you to pause it right when uh mother it's kind of a side shot and mother is you know you see the left side of mother the right side of tempest tempest has the blanket around her mother is wearing this white shawl and there's this like light under mother and you know there's something in this image that looks vaguely like the annunciation right it looks like the annunciation of christ to mary sort of type thing or annunciation um uh, of like an angel coming and telling you know someone who's pregnant like you are with child this child will do a lot like mother the actress who plays mother who's phenomenal you know she's really not just a great actress like she's really good with her body if that makes sense the way she moves her body and kind of um you know her name is amanda collin uh like contorts her body and extends her she's a very long neck and that sounds weird but it's true um she, the way she extends her neck and like her very stringy arms and all in latex with the shawls very thin she kind of looks otherworldly and i mean she is a quote-unquote android obviously but if you pause it on that scene it looks really interesting and it does have some sort of prophetic like religious imagery enunciation her hand is on like tempest's knee she's like gazing at tempest very you know almost like and there's like an angelic quality to it um so really really interesting um you know then of course we have uh you know the situation where the uh the encampment is attacked by these creatures you know uh after some tension uh mother recovers her eyes or father recovers mother's eyes from campion who'd stolen him thank god he hadn't thrown him in the well or would have been very different um and then uh you know we you know mother vaporizes these creatures who again we we don't know what they are a couple more of those creatures ram marcus and thank god he tied himself to that rope or you know he would still be falling probably as as we as we speak um and the uh episode ends really with him just sort of hanging there hanging perilously uh over uh you know a hole um and uh he is just asleep passed out when the other mithraic uh find his signal and are able to uh find him and uh pull him pull him up um he gets pulled out and you know that's basically how the episode ends um so really interesting start. I, you know, I said I'd get to all three, but maybe one and two is a little bit, a uh, little bit better because um, three kind of takes the simulation part and you know really explores that and and begins to really move you know other pieces of the plot. So I'll do another episode for for three. Um, but like the show's setup has been really you know fascinating. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting themes that are being uh, teased out here. And I think one of the biggest and most important ones that we're going to see over time is this theme of like ambiguity of experience, right? I think we're going to see a lot of things that like look like they could be divine intervention, but also have a logical, rational explanation. Um, you know, frankly, you could say that mother turning into uh, unstoppable like T-1000 style, like robot, you know, demon, you know, if, if you and I saw that, our first thought might not be like, oh, sophisticated Android. If we saw that like in our lives, you might be like, holy cow, it's the apocalypse. What the hell? Um, you know, so I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that's really ambiguous about really like, are we actually seeing something that's like religious, that's attributable to God or soul or whatever, or is this all explainable by science or, or something else? Um, you know, my, my big grand theory of the show is that they will eventually discover some remnants of a human civilization on Kepler 22b and figure out that basically all the humans on Kepler 22b left Kepler 22b after it was destroyed basically due to war. Um, and they actually came to Earth to build a new civilization. Um, and I think that's probably going to be, if I had to guess right now, um, the uh the big like first discovery or sorry the big like picture discovery um potentially of season one or potentially of the show you know throughout its its run um but that theme of ambiguity i think is going to be more and more apparent um and i think another theme that that is really hard to get away from is this theme of of conflict you know conflict is so 
integral to the uh, human experience, uh, inner conflict, conflict with each other, uh, with the world, with nature. Um, and I think the show is going to really, you know, tease that out in a way that, that perhaps other shows haven't done yet. Um, a couple more just themes as we wrap up the, the conversation about episodes one and two. So the, the dinosaur bones um, that, or the serpent bones that they're discovering, they seem pretty shallow. So if they are shallow, um, it means that they are probably, they probably died out really recently. Um, and it could be that, <clears throat> you know, there was an extinction event very recently. It could be that there is like something that changed in the planet that made it uninhabitable um, to the, to the humans. Um, you know, uh, so that's, that was one thing that sort of stuck out to me. Second thing that stuck out to me was that the, uh, the arc had, you know, a few kids. It wasn't five kids. It was, you know, a dozen or a couple dozen, but she came back with five. So what was the criteria for selecting those five? Um, it's kind of odd. Um, you know, my, my theory is that these five were five who either she was quickly able to assess as having the, um, you know, like least or like most, th their belief system was most susceptible to being broken or she picked them out on the basis of racial diversity or genetic diversity, um, you know, something or something else entirely, you know, it's not clear at this time, but it was, um, it was interesting to see what exactly, uh, you know, what exactly guided her, her decision. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating too. Um, one criticism I have of the first two episodes and, and hopefully they'll explain this is that, you know, like I understand that the androids want humans to sort of like start from scratch. Like the science of Kepler 22B is going to be very different than the science of Earth, right? Like the, you know, what the food you could grow, the, you know, the, the ore you can mine, like the things that you could build, the structures that you could, you know, inhabit. There's going to be some, you know, similarities obviously to Earth, but like your, your knowledge of like Earth botany and Earth chemistry and Earth um, geology are not going to be exactly the same up here on a planet with like apparently no water, which is also kind of a surprising thing, um, or limited water, uh, and, uh, you know, multiple moons. So I get that like the primary objective of these androids is like, we need humanity to basically like figure it out on their own. We're here to kind of hold their hand and guide them, but we're not able to, we're not going to be able to like fabricate like antibiotics or, you know, whatever sophisticated medicine, because like when we're gone, these people won't be able to do that and they'll die. So we need to make sure that they can live and, you know, procreate and, you know, et cetera. Um, so I get it, but it's, it's very hard to say to yourself like, well, I mean, yeah, but like humanity already like learned those things. Maybe you could teach those kids like, Hey, here's a simple way to build like uh, you know, something that will be a pain reliever using the leaves of the carbo plant. Like, and you guys can mash this in, in a mortar and pestle and you know, there you go. So maybe that'll be, you know, something that we see a little bit, um, you know, later on. Um, next up uh, in episode two, I, I do wonder about the, um, I guess the uh, animal attack, like they've been there for years and years and years and years uh, at this point, at least, you know, I'd guess based on Campion's age, 10 to 12 human years. Um, they've never encountered any of these animals before. I mean, it means one of two things, right? Like either the crash of the ark disturbed them and brought them out to the surface, or their attack wasn't completely random. Like it was something that either mother made happen um, to, you know, show that like the eyes were like an absolutely necessary defensive mechanism or to give, you know, a sense of like outside threat to the kids so that they further band together. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it's, it's very interesting. Uh, another thing that I thought really emerged in, in by the second episode is that the prophecy about the prophet, um, like they're pretty much like, you know, at least three really good candidates. Um, you know, you might even say four good candidates, right? Obviously Campion is the most obvious one. He's technically, you know, uh, orphan, you know, parent, like his natural parents are gone. But you could say that like the fact that he had these two Android parents don't make, make him not an orphan, but technically he's an orphan out in the wilderness. 
Um, you have Paul, whose actual parents again were killed, but he still has parents in you know Marcus and Sue. Um, so <clears throat> he could be the orphan out in the wilderness, right? Tempest, who is with child. I mean, if she does not survive, uh, she's already made clear that like the father, the biological father at least, uh, probably died in the ark, at least as far as we can tell. Um, and if she dies, uh, which given the threats on this planet, um, seems likely, or at least certainly possible, um, you know, her child could be the orphan out in the wilderness. Um, and then lastly, Marcus, um, Marcus is, you know, seem his parent. I think he mentions that at some point in the first two or three episodes that he doesn't know his parents, or maybe I'm misremembering that, but he certainly doesn't have his parents now. He's on the ark with Sue and he's by himself and he's out there in the wilderness. And, you know, he is uh, obviously an atheist, but he's among the Mithraic and a lot obviously can can happen. So, um, you know, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting uh, setup in these first two episodes. I'll, you know, end this podcast now and uh, do the third episode as a separate podcast uh, that I'll upload right after this. You could you could hear both. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in the next episode, uh, we really get into the world of, of theory making and theory crafting and trying to figure out this universe. Um, as of this recording, episodes four and five have been released. Um, and I'm eager to, to watch those and I'll do the, you know, those two in a podcast together as well. Um, but I think the show is really phenomenal. I think it's, uh, got, it's like nothing else on TV. I think it's, you know, the best show of 2020, you know, that I've seen by far. Um, a lot of good TV now. We're, we're lucky to have that during this pandemic. And, you know, so many of us stuck at home with uh, so little to actually do. But um, this show really was, uh, you know, a big surprise in terms of its intensity, its pacing. You know, it's it's like uh, big thinking, it's grandness, it's, uh, you know, production value, which really, I mean, you could tell they spent a lot of money on this. Um, you know, Ridley Scott has a very distinctive vision and, and, and watching this, I feel like, wow, this was like all the stuff that he probably wanted to put into Prometheus, like his like movie notes and stuff, um, you know, or, or would have thought to put into Prometheus, but didn't making Prometheus like kind of not that good, visually quite stunning, but you know, from a story perspective, uh, less so. Um, and also with Prometheus, he was kind of obligated to, you could tell like really sort of shoehorn in everything into the alien universe. So like the xenomorphs had to be a part of it, like the engineers, like, you know, all that stuff sort of had to be like put in. So I like that this gave him, um, and the showrunner, uh, who, uh, I think the, the biggest previous credit the showrunner has or the show creator or writer main writer has is, uh, having done prisoners, which is a really good movie that I recommend everyone check out. Um, but you know, with this sort of TV show vehicle, you could tell a longer story. You could build a more fleshed out universe over the course of, you know, roughly 10 hours or nine and a half hours of, uh, you know, programming versus, you know, two hours or two and a half hours. Um, even the most skilled, like director, storyteller, you know, you can only go so far, right? Like if you take the first Star Wars movie or, you know, even, uh, what do you call it? Empire Strikes Back, you know, standing alone. Yeah, you get a lot of sense that this is a huge, huge universe, but you don't actually get to go into depth into that universe. And I think we're already beginning to plunge into the depth of of um, of this universe or this world. Uh, and, uh, you know, this show, I think, is really just one thing that really, really stood out to me is it's it, it offers a pretty strong lesson for, for writers, creative writers and such, because what you see in this is a very good example of show don't tell. You know, that's the biggest sin of, of like weak writing. I think when you're writing for TV, anything that is expository writing in nature, like, you know, someone gets up there and, and says, this planet is dangerous, is very different from actually having the camera like fly over giant holes, seeing one of the kids, you know, you don't see the kid tally fall into the hole, but like, you know, indicating that a kid has fallen into a hole. You know, um, there are wild animals here. You, it's not safe. Very different from actually showing the wild animals like attacks, showing that they could, you know, they they were attacking humans, like they were acting in a way that you would expect wild animals that are very hungry to act. So, 
the, sh the show does a very good job of showing rather than telling in most instances. And that, I think that's a much harder job when you are trying to show uh, things in a universe that's as like fantastical and scientifically advanced and, you know, futuristic as, as this one. So I, I really have to commend the showrunners and, you know, the direction and the production of the show for doing a really, really good job of sucking us into this world by showing us these things, by showing us the brutality of the war on earth in like little glimpses, by showing us, you know, the necromancer in action, by showing us like the loading of humans into the ark and like what looks like a sports stadium. You know, we see these things and we learn to draw our own inferences about the universe. And I think throughout the show, that is going to be one of the most you know, I think uh, really, really compelling themes, right? You're going to see stuff, I'm going to see stuff, and we're all going to live with that ambiguity and wonder, well, what does this mean? Like, is like, is soul real in this universe, right? Is, is soul actually like helping these people? Um, or is soul totally, you know, just a made up thing? And these people are just they are religious crackpots who, you know, fanatics, actually, many of many of them seem fanatical, um, who are going to shoehorn any kind of like, you know, favorable thing into their mythology or superstition or religious beliefs or whatever, you know. Um, and I think that, that that is one of the really good hallmarks of a really good show. It, it shows us stuff. It kind of like lays out the, you know, the, the, the table. And it lets us kind of move the pieces and, you know, make deductions and make inferences and make conclusions about what the show is trying to tell. So, you know, for people who, you know, have a natural aversion to like that kind of ambiguity, but still want to watch the show, I would encourage you to sort of get comfortable with it because I don't think we're going to be, you know, spoon fed much. Um, and I don't think the show has an opinion on whether the Mithraic religious system is a fanatical, you know, crackpot stupidity, or if it is actually like in universe valid and soul is real there. I don't think there's ever going to be, you know, a scene where like some soul like angel descends and, and, and validates the Mithraic's beliefs. And I, I don't think obviously we're ever going to have just like in the real world, you, you know, we can't prove a negative. We're never going to have conclusive proof that, you know, soul doesn't exist and the Mithraic belief system are, are a bunch of lies. Um, so we're going to have to really live inside that ambiguity and focus on the more significant themes that I think, and I shouldn't say more significant, you know, some of the other prominent themes that I think the show is going to try to underscore like really hard, which is accepting and living with that ambiguity. How do we do it? How do we achieve peace when, you know, half the world thinks, you know, fanatically one thing and half the world thinks fanatically something else? Um, or, you know, frankly, half the world thinks something fanatically and half the world just doesn't care or is like whatever, um, which is not that um, irrelevant of a theme for the time that we live in. Um, and I think the perhaps like the overarching big theme that, that might be being teased already is this theme of conflict, right? Human conflict. Like we exist in a state of perpetual conflict, conflict with each other, conflict with ourselves. Um, you know, conflict really identifies, I mean, it's like intrinsic to the human condition, like from the moment, the first, you know, human, you know, homo sapiens, you know, sort of like started going about their life. Like they existed in conflict with the Neanderthals, with other homo sapiens, with animals, with woolly mammoths, with nature, with, you know, everything within themselves as they struggled with like the, the idea of like sentience and existence generally. Um, and we obviously are, you know, we're still having those conflicts, right? We struggle with each other over resources, over prestige, over jobs, over money, over everything. And we struggle internally with our own identity, with, you know, what we are, who we are, who we think we are versus who we project ourselves to be. And when you want, when I watch the show, I see that theme really just so, you know, beautifully drawn out. Like they're, you know, we, we're never going to outgrow or like out evolve or out technologize this urge towards conflict, even though it doesn't really serve any particular purpose anymore. You know, you could say that like the urge, the human urge or inclination or intrinsic attribute of driving, you know, embracing conflict and growing from it 
maybe that made a, a great deal of sense, um, you know, when Homo sapiens were, were a very young species just trying to survive on Earth, and you know, you wanted the the more favorable, you know, genetic attributes to propagate, so the stronger people survived, the smarter people survived, et cetera, et cetera. Through conflict, they were able to overcome their adversaries, their weaker adversaries through conflict. But at some point, you know, you are like, can we ease up the conflict and kind of build a peaceful civilization? Like, could we all take it easy and just like, I don't know, have a few bucks in our pocket or for no bucks at all and just have our human needs met so we could focus on what's important, which is, you know, uh, ostensibly being good and kind to each other and making sense of like this weird really freaking weird thing of existence, like, or try to make sense of it. Um, but no, we, we seem unable to, and we seem unable to outgrow it or out technologize it or out evolve it. Like the conflict is there no matter what. And, you know, by, by setting the story on a planet that is like, you know, 600, 700 light years away where humanity is like trying to start anew, we already have just so much conflict. You know, the, the first human on this planet, Campion, seems, I'm sorry, uh, not the first human, I guess he's the sixth, but like the, you know, for a while, the only human on that planet, Campion, um, you know, you get already sees obviously conflict with his parents, conflict within himself, like this weird quasi urge to pray or like ask about soul and ask about like, you know, the Mithraic religion and expressing interest in, in it. Maybe that's a childlike curiosity more than anything else, but conflict already exists there. Right, obviously the Mithraic come, and there's immediate conflict between them and and the encampment, uh, the atheistic encampment, with within and among the uh, Mithraic. There's obviously conflict there. Um, so this, and I and I imagine as the story goes on, the there will be other conflict too, including potentially with the uh, if there are any natural, you know, we already know there are animals in this planet, but if there's any natural intelligent life in this planet, I have a feeling that there will be conflict there. So. I think that's the one of the grand questions the show is teeing up. At what point does humanity outgrow this, you know, just urge or sort of tendency or like desire or like I don't even know if it's like genetic or or biological or what, but this tendency towards conflict as the means of progress because conflict doesn't always need to it's not the only way to actually have progress. Um, you know, it's interesting that like when you have a TV show uh, or like any sort of piece of art that, you know, movie or whatever, uh, book, you know, you want there to be drama. You want there to be like some sort of, uh, you know, some kind of like, it just not, it can't be like, hey, Peter woke up, he had a sandwich, it was a good day, he went to sleep. The next, you know, 50 years were more or less the same. And then, you know, um, he moved to like whatever New York and then lived another 30 years and loved his grandkids. And then he died. Like that's not really, I mean, that's a great life. Sure. But it's not really much of a story and a story like much like, you know, if you took any of those individual years of Peter's life, you'd find there was tremendous like drama and conflict, et cetera, even in the most like mundane looking, you know, time period. And that's the thing, like drama, good drama, good storytelling, requires there to be conflict, requires there to be tension. So I point that out only to, to emphasize that not only do we embrace like this, you know, conflict in our, in our lives and our existence, but also because we have put it, we need it in our entertainment. We need it in our, we need it in our drama. So it's so closely tied to like the human condition and the human existence. And obviously we are now living as of the time of this recording, September, 2020, I mean, we are living in a moment of unprecedented conflict in the modern era, you know, not since really, you know, I would say candidly since like World War II and the Cold War, have we seen, you know, so many huge groups of people just so opposed to so many other groups of people um, over everything, right? Everything from health to science, to politics, to governance, just, you know, I think this, this year has been, uh, you know, obviously will be forever linked to the pandemic. But also linked to you know this conflict that is in all of our you know American cities and many many cities and towns across the world, um, a moment of of great tumult. So I think the show is really timely in in if it is embracing that theme and and the other themes that I've touched upon, and I'm very very uh, excited to see where it goes. So 
yeah, so this has been the first episode. Uh, please rate and review it if you've made it to the end. I think that's the only way uh, people actually um, can find it. And uh, you know, I, I will record um, episodes for the rest of the the show. So the next episode that uh, I will watch will be episode four. Um, and I will uh, record a podcast for episodes three and four. Um, and then I will do one for episode five. And then starting next week, I will do a podcast for episodes six and seven. Uh, and then another episode for, um, sorry, another podcast for episodes eight and nine. And then another podcast for the finale, episode 10. And like I said, I hope to be able to have a few guests on. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for listening if you've listened. And like I said, please rate and review and subscribe to this podcast if you're interested. Um, uh, I will try to include uh, my contact information in the show notes if you have questions. Um, so I can encourage, uh, so I want to encourage anyone who hears this and makes it to the end. If you have questions about the show or things that you want to tease up, please email me again. My email will be in the show notes and uh, we could take it from there. Um, I will figure out a way to, you know, make sure I address any questions I get. Uh, otherwise, I will be talking about new theories, themes, and, um, you know, doing show recaps and episode recaps as they come. I really hope the show gets picked up for season two. Uh, hopefully that happens very soon, although, you know, not much is being produced or, or recorded right now. Um, but uh, I, I can't imagine given the quality of the show and the attention it has garnered already um, that it won't get picked up for a second season. Um, it's uh, really refreshing. And uh, maybe another reason I really love it is at a time of, of such great difficulty for so many people around the world, it's so nice to be able to watch something that just takes us far away. In fact, six or 700 light years away uh, to a conflict that is both thematically similar to our own, but different enough that we could just put our heads on Kepler 22b and think about, you know, think about mother and father and, and the folks uh, over there. So again, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I will uh, speak to you all again soon. Take care.